Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress and rapper Aquafina, aka Nora Lum. Well, Aquafina is having quite a moment. She's part of the impressive cast of female icons such as Sandra Bullock, Rihanna, Kate Blanchett, and Sarah Paulson in Ocean's 8. And she's so hilarious in Crazy Rich Asians that you'll barely hear her next line over the sound of your own laughter. What does this moment in the spotlight feel like? Aquafina likens it to this. I compare it to a wall opening up and transporting you to an alternate dimension where there is no gravity and everything is weird. Her initial shock isn't so strange when you consider the fact that she never allowed herself to dream of a career in the arts. There weren't exactly any female Asian-American actress-rapper hybrids to pave the road to possibility. Aquafina tried to follow the path that her friends took after college, but living the buttoned-up office life of a publicity assistant in Manhattan wasn't really her thing. When her boss made her choose between her music and her unfulfilling job, it wasn't much of a contest. Not only because she got fired, but because her very being was at stake. As she explains, if I didn't have my music, then I didn't have an identity. With nothing to lose, she posted her music video, entitled My Vag, on YouTube. This is a song in which she hilariously raps about the superiority of her genitalia. It's true, you should check it out. It's hilarious and unexpected and completely original. And after the push of the publish button, Aquafina became a viral success. And the rest is history, or her story. As the first Asian-American actress-rapper of any consequence, Aquafina acknowledges, Being the first sucks, but I found what I love. I found what I always dreamt of as a kid that would connect with adulthood. It's so powerful to me. I finally feel like I can walk and know what I'm doing. I know why I'm here. Aquafina joins off-camera to talk about embracing the responsibility that comes with being an Asian-American actor in Hollywood, discovering her comedic talents post-personal tragedy, and why Margaret Cho is her spirit animal. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Nora. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Your life's a little crazy right now. Yeah. Um, I just saw Crazy Rich Asians. Okay. With a giant audience. And I was curious, after my experience with it, and seeing the entire theater sort of erupt with laughter with everything you said and then not being able to hear your next line oh, man. because the theater was going crazy and knowing that you just went to this premiere where this, you know, this is such a huge event. I wonder if that kind of response or that experience for you is, has been emotional at all. It's extremely emotional. I mean, it is? Yeah. I mean, the movie in itself is, uh, as I, I can't tell if I'm emotional at the thought of it from like, an actor standpoint or an Asian American standpoint, just as a person that grew up in this country and loves movies, it's very significant and, and people, it, it makes people feel a certain way. And it's also, you know, th- there are like very emotional parts in it, so that causes tears. But I, but like yesterday, I just kept, I just kept crying. Really? Like, it was, it was a moment. It was definitely a moment. Yeah. Well, your character Paiklin is, is totally original on screen. Well, that's because there was like no direction for her. Like John. 
totally trusted his actors in a way where he would allow us to like play around, you know, and uh, improv. A lot of what I did was improv. You're kidding me. I'd say about 75% of everything that I did was improv, yeah. Really? And, um, you know, there's like a line, if, if you saw it, where um, I dropped the F-bomb. Yeah. And if you watch the full take of that, it's me just going, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I curse, let's run it again. So, but it made the movie, you know? So that, that was really, really cool. I would think that you're not over the shock of seeing yourself on a big screen yet. I'm not over it, yeah. It's, it's horrifying. You didn't have the normal trajectory of you got two lines on a NCIS. <laughs> or you got, uh, you know, you got one line as a, as a, you know, an extra who got As a medical out. examiner, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you sort of jumped into Neighbors and then Ocean's 8 and then this. Yeah. So what was sort of the biggest shock to get over? You know, I, I compare it to, like, pretend like, you know, we were here and like one of, like the wall opened up and you're transported into an alternate dimension where like things had no gravity and things were weird. So that's that first initial shock, right? But then everything else past that is like, oh, well that makes sense because we're in an alternate universe. So like it's, it gets easier. But I think um, the first initial shock was, it, it was a late night shoot on Neighbors 2. That was my first movie. Right. First time acting like, I never even known what the like what the process with camera. You didn't know real, what a mark was. Or? No, no, no <laughs> what a camera. I even what a camera was. Um, so yeah, so no, I, well, um, and so like I remember there was this one night where I just like it was so late, and I opened my eyes and it was Seth Rogen, Rose Byrne, and then Zac Efron, and I was like, this is weird. Like this is weird for me. I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's just like numb, numbness. It's like you're just numb to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd In have a good to be, way. Or your body would shut down, I would think. It, like my, yes, my fangirl body would, would shut down, for sure, <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about specifically being in a film like Crazy Rich Asians mm -hmm. because it's the first film in 25 years to feature an all-Asian cast. Yep. And so I sort of, last couple of weeks when I knew you were coming in, I conducted my own little informal poll oh. at bars and restaurants and supermarkets. Oh, where oh great. I was just asking, I was asking people, can you name three Asian actors? You know, not named Bruce Lee or, or Jackie, Jackie Chan, Chan or Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible joke. Um, but nobody could. Are you kidding me? I couldn't find one person who could name three Asian what? actors. Could and they I, name one or two? Yeah, one or two, or it was that guy from, or that oh. that girl who was in Sideways. They couldn't They couldn't say Sandra Oh. They, yeah. they didn't know. I, I don't doubt it. I mean, that sounds... That, that sounds accurate to me, yeah. But it sort of really made me shocked about mm -hmm. how um, how underrepresented. Right. Asians. Oh no, 100%. And you know, the conversation is 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 difficult. And for me, um, you know, Asians have not had such an, such an extensive history, um, particularly of, of discrimination, and particularly of 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 like of just being here for a long time and population-wise as African-Americans. Right. So we're, we make up a relatively small population in America. What is it, 6%? 6%, yeah. And so, you know, I think, you know, while that can be an excuse or whatever, um, there there is underrepresentation, And it isn't until you see movies like Crazy Rich Asians or you see a show like Fresh Off the Boat or, you know, for me seeing Margaret Cho, that you realize that, that um, representation is a privilege. And it's one that... Um, um, you know, people are very used to having here. And this is, for Asian Americans, we're, we're our own group. Because when we go to China or Asia, 
we're nothing there, you know? Like, you know, it's so, it's even harder. Nothing in terms of, you don't have a heritage. There's no, like, there's no, you know, if you don't speak the language and you don't know the land, you don't know where anything is or, you know, but New York, you know, that's where I'm from. That's my home. But even in New York, growing up there, you're not American. You're seen as Asian, not Asian-American. So there's that identity crossover and a lot of us have immigrant parents that you know we, we kind of go to school and we want to be eating lunchables you know and 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 be you know these american kids but then we go home to like this kind of shittily decorated you know like household with uh with all these traditions and we kind of have to negotiate both identities and hide identities um so it, it's a complicated struggle and so you know when when it comes to representation in, in hollywood um, and we get like such a narrow range of 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 people of like you know long duck dongs and and things right. like that. It's it's really an identity mashup. And I and I truly do believe that the way that we're reflected in the media, which is the only way that people can see us at this point, um, will 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 come out to how we're treated in real life. Yeah. And honestly, you don't think about it until you see a film like Crazy Rich. Exactly. Movies. Yes. Yeah. That's that's hundred percent it. Yeah. I was curious what kind of conversations came up on set among all because it's funny. I started looking at how many Asian actors I could think of, and, and <laughs> could you think of three? I could think of three. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Totally. Yeah, yeah. But but I'm in this business. And, right. Could you, you know, name ten? Could I name ten? <laughs> Let's see. Well, you, I mean, if it's if it's not weird, it, let me try. Let's try it. Let's try. Okay, so let's go with Sandra O. Oh. Zhang Zi, Chow Yun Fat, Chow Yun Fat, um, Randall Park, Randall Park, Grace Park, Grace Park. Uh, I'm going to say Margaret Cho. Yeah. Um, let's go. See, I, I'm trying to do it without naming people in your film because I could go Jimmy O Yang and Constance Wu. Well, you just well, everybody in your they film. They count but, too, but 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 yeah, try to go out. Yeah, that's that's even more of a challenge. Lucy Liu. Yep. Uh, John Cho. But anyway, I okay. think that okay. I think that. Uh, just doing that exercise makes me realize how underrepresented exactly, that is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard. Even I was trying to rack my brain after he's, after Randall Park. I was just. Oh really? I was like, well, what else is there? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. That's kind of sad. But I think that what I wondered about is that you're a fairly new actor, a brand mm-hmm. new actor. I am. And you get in this cast with people who have been knocking on doors for years. Exactly. So that's that's another thing is like people have asked me like, what was it? What's it like? And I think for me, I'm I'm slightly spoiled because I only started acting maybe three years ago or four years ago. So I was I came into the industry um, at a time when uh, you know it was more it was e- it was a little easier. You always have to think about the people that came before you and 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 what they did, right. because you you can't blame bad roles on the actors that took them. You got to blame what they were able to get at that and time. what they were given exactly yeah. I mean that's certainly an interesting thing about coming from a different world and mm-hmm. you, you sort of I, I see you as a DIY artist in a lot of ways yeah, sure. someone who totally made her own future and I think that you know when you think of actors that that have spent their lives auditioning mm-hmm. and taking whatever role they could get to work yeah. it's very hard for those people to have an identity sure. and it's, a, it's also a privilege to say no or yes right like some people right. can't so yeah right yeah. So what kind of conversations came up that even surprised you or, or made you think differently after after having this shared experience? You know, like Ken Jong said, this is the first time I've been 
given the opportunity to play a complex character. Yeah, it doesn't have to do with a stereotype. And Asian, and, I mean, and actors should be able to to want that, you know, and they should be able to have that fulfilled at Absolutely. some point in their careers. And that's what happens when you have more than one. So that's that's what when, when diversity and representation, those things come into play, and it and it goes beyond Asian Americans. It's it's if you have an entire cast of of a, of a kind of underrepresented people, they each become. A complex character. That's right, and it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, it makes you realize also just how 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 tropes are so prevalent in in every kind of storytelling yeah. where we need a characterization rather than a character, or we or we exactly. need a, a, a plot motivator rather than a human being. Yes. Like, it, it's hard enough just to start acting and to get roles. Yeah. But do you feel like you have an extra burden on your shoulders of the responsibility of of you know, the, this idea that you're going to be representative of your culture and to not perpetrate stereotypes, yeah. even if the job is good, and you're right. like, oh, that's a great payday. I mean, it's, it's, a no, it's no question that, you know, when I first started, um, I think every artist, they, don't, they, only, they only want to be seen as an artist, right? They don't want to be seen as that Asian American or that right. woman. They just want to be seen as an artist. And I think that that, that is a very... That goes away, you know. Like, like you can think that till your dying breath. I could die and be like, I don't want to represent them, but I will represent them even then. So that is something that yeah, you have no choice in the matter. You have no choice in the matter, but you can think all you want. Anything that I do, and my reasoning for that was, is that it's anything good I do, they'll win. Anything bad I do, will they lose? You know, or or you know, I don't want to have that burden. It's a burden. But I think later I realized that it's not such a burden as it is a responsibility. And um, the responsibility is that, uh, you know, you, you are out there representing them in an, in, in an industry where they're completely underrepresented. But then also, the only thing that I can do in my power is not do those roles because they pay a lot. Or because, you know, well, I'm an actor and I want to do it. Um, you have to make decisions based on the greater good of your community. And I think that if you're doing that, that's that's okay. Like I don't I don't really think that I'm losing because of that. I think that that that's what's right, you know? I think that's a really enlightened viewpoint and I think that it's it's not a viewpoint that that people not of color have had to think about. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I get that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't, I have not about it until now, but you're right. You're absolutely right. I think Asians are, you know, just to be completely honest, I think that often they're a cheap shot, you know? Um, it's, I, I remember I got a serious radio subscription one time and they have all these comedy channels on them. And, you know, I was shocked and appalled at how easily they can, people can make just, just any, just really bad Asian jokes. Right. Um, and it got me thinking like, why, you know, I think, I think that maybe it's different now. And I think that now like people just, like people really are hard on PC culture. A lot of people are very annoyed at it. Like, especially, you know, comedians can't tell jokes without getting in trouble and, and I think that, you know, to an extent, maybe there is a, a degree of, over, of hypersensitivity. Yeah. I, I, you know, as a comedian, I, I, I can see that. But I also believe that w there should be nothing weird or wrong about living in a culture where you make jokes at the expense of others and that you get in trouble for it. Like, that's a, that, that should be the way it is. You should not be able to make jokes at the expense of others. It's just right. a culture, you know, and, and if you do, then you should fear some kind of backlash. And when that backlash comes, you know, don't question it. You know, because that's you did that yourself. You know, and so I I think that that culture is is very resounding in Hollywood right now, and um, it's it's a good thing. I don't you know. 
It makes me wonder growing up how many things you just took for granted is this is just the way it is. Right, exactly. Now growing up, did you, you, was your mom Korean, your dad Chinese? Yes. So is there a more complex framework to feeling like your identity is mixed up anyway sure. because within your own house? There's... I mean, we, we barely got into like, like, inter, like, like Korean, Japan, Japanese, Chinese in, in this country. Like it gets even weirder when you talk about halfies, right. you know, and especially inter-Asian halfies, like we're not very not common at all. Right. So did you feel like, uh, I don't know, an imposter no matter what? My mom passed when I was young, and so um, I, I'm, I'm very alienated from my Korean family. I was raised by my Chinese grandma. And, uh, yeah, my grandma's my mom, pretty much. Right. That's just what it is, yeah. You know, I, I was reading about that, and one of the things that struck me is that you said that it was one of the first times you felt embarrassment, like being the girl that didn't have a mom yeah. or, or people feeling sorry for you or whatever yeah. made you feel embarrassed. Deeply uncomfortable and embarrassed. Embarrassment was one of the first emotions I ever learned as a really really young child, like what, three or four years old. Was? It, I think it was um, a discomfort. I don't, I don't think any child likes to see adults cry. I think it makes them feel a little wary um, because if, if your protector is crying, then who's protecting you? And so right. the, more, the more emotional everyone else got around me, the more funny I would get. So I literally used comedy at such a young age, you know, as... You were trying to get the adults to stop crying because then the world didn't seem that's so how scary. I, that's how I saw it when I was young. Yeah, okay. Well, don't cry because, you know, I'm doing that. Like, that's, that's the kid I was. And, you know, it's, I, I later found out that, you know, a lot of comedians, um, first of all, they're extremely self-deprecating. Um, they have a lot, of, a lot of problems like that, you know, kind of occurred at a young age and, and adversity. And out of that was born, you know, a lot of other things. So it made sense psychologically. Right. Yeah. So when you were a kid and you started being funny, mm -hmm. did it have a secondary consequence past like the protection aspect and the defense mechanism? Like, did you start to notice you liked the attention? Yeah, like I, I remember I would study like Saturday Night Live and and Mad TV because I knew that if I dropped, like like if I studied what was going on, then I would understand what was going on in the news, and then I would bring that up at like six or seven, and I would entertain so many adults around me. And I watched like every film, you know, and I would drop the, so one of the first movies I ever saw as a kid was My Cousin Vinny and A Hand That Rocks a Cradle. I would do an impression of Marissa Tomei. Those are very adult films to see. They were extremely adult films, but, but, but also like, I always said that if I have kids, I will force them to watch films because that's how I grew up. And, and even, you know, growing up in Queens and not having a lot of like, you know, even, even though Manhattan's just very close, I still wasn't right. able to access a lot of that culture. I would go to Hollywood Video, which was like a chain that shut down in, in New York. And I, my, my dad had um, this pass where you can rent three at a time. Right. And I would just eat up independent videos. So there were so many independent movies that I had seen. And then I started working at an independent video store when I was 16 because I, sh I came in and I was like, well, my favorite movies are the Magdalene Sisters. And I was bringing up all these movies. And my boss was like, all right, you're, you can work here. So Really? Yeah. Did you want to be a stand-up comedian? Did you want to be an actor? Did you want to be a musician? Like, what did you want to be? I, I didn't want to do any of those specifically. I think people were all, my whole life, people have always been saying, like, you got to do stand-up. Really? Not even acting. Like, acting, they never, they did everyone, my aunts, since I was a kid, they're like, you got to do something, you got to do it. And, you know, to this day, like, I don't, I, I, I have never really done stand-up, ever. And How so, come? Because I feel like it's, it'll be infringing upon you know, there was always, like, that, that annoying dude from, like, you know, that, that f kind of, like, 
just kind of just picked up stand up right at like at like 25 right. and and I and I hate that dude so you missed your window I didn't know that I could do any of that stuff because I didn't see it as a viable career but I also remember always questioning like what I could do and it, none of it ever seemed right I always wondered like what how would going to school and and whatever connect to being with an adult like how what would I be like as an adult what would I do you know and, and it Who would never you talk made to sense. about this stuff? In my myself, in my head. I was just an only head. child, yeah. So you just had a lot of, like, you had to figure out a lot of stuff Did you know own. what you it's like growing up as an only child? Tell it me. Is the, it's the loneliest existence. <laughs> and, and so, like, I can spend weeks alone. You know, like, no, I don't need anybody. I don't need... But isn't I don't that need the greatest call. thing, like, to have as a skill? Yeah, sad, too. You know, like, <laughs> when I imagine people, like, I, I watched, was watching Orange is the New Black, imagining what they were like when they go to... Um, the stew or the shoe or whatever. Oh it was right, called. the uh, the And I was like, dude, confinement. welcome to my life, dude. Just being in a Did room. Did you feel that way? <laughs> yeah, be, I mean, because and then thank God for t- I had TV, so right. that's cool. Yeah. So you started playing music at what age? Eleven. Eleven. Yeah. Well, I was curious if it changed that loneliness or it gave you sort of a purpose. Because here's the thing: I read this quote where you said that Margaret Show was the first unashamed Asian mm-hmm. woman you'd ever seen. Yeah. And it got me thinking about, well. If you're an only child, you have no one to have these discussions with. How do you think that any interest Anything you have is possible. could be viable or possible? Dude, that, that actually makes sense. I never thought about that until you said that. Because I used to really, that was an odd, like I really did, you know, like how would it translate? One of the first things that, like I remember I watched this, this movie Air Bud. I was obsessed with Air Bud. Is that Air the dog? The, like the dog who, who was like really good at basketball. He's a basketball, yeah, he wore a cape. Like, <laughs> Air Bud. He I wore, don't think it was Air Bud. It was Air Bud. Air Bud, Air Bud, <laughs> Air Buds. Um, so, I mean, he was an Air Bud, dude. He got, he got some sick air, you know what I mean? Oh, he, he had the vertical And leap. he was a Bud. Yeah. Um, but I remember, like, being like, wouldn't that be so cool if I was that kid? And then thinking, like, but that, how, that wouldn't be possible. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be possible. how would I get a dog that could play basketball? No, no, well, well yeah, I mean, you know, we, we figure that out. But, like, we would have to recast my parents. Right. It would probably be, like, a Pekingese at that point. <laughs> you know, it, golden, Asian people don't have golden retrievers, you know? So I, it, that, that, that makes sense. That's, I never thought about it like that. No, but I think, I think it's interesting to, to see where you are now and trace back the steps of, obviously, you were a really creative person. Yeah. And yet you're this lonely kid at home. And then I read that you went to the fame school. Yeah. You went to LaGuardia? That's when my, everything changed. That's okay. when things made sense because... When you're growing up in Queens in a certain way, and, and you know, and obviously, you know, I I did, I think I was artistic, but I confused that with being like kind of a freak, or like an outsider. Because you wanted to go in your room and do weird stuff, and that was yeah, freaky. yeah, and and also like you know, the Asian kids that went to my junior high school were what I refer to as like the cool Asians that like smoked Marlboro menthols and wore North Face, and they really just did not. They thought they just thought I was weird. So I always used to wonder like what kind of girl I would need to be to, like, actually get these, these, these guys' attention. And, and it, it just seemed impossible for me to, like, become that girl that would, like, ride in the Acura Integra. But it made sense. <laughs> but also at that age, you're not supposed... Like, you're always, like, very upset with, like, who you are, and you always want to... Right. You know, I mean, it was definitely, like, a coming-of-age thing. But it made sense when I went to high school because I was in school with, like, so many other artistic kids or, or whoever whatever freak like freaks you know it wasn't a freak school but it was a school where where artsy kids 
with with very you know and you know it wasn't like Stuyvesant where these were like you know kids that were you know on on their debate team or whatever these were kids that loved music and and showed an extraordinary interest in in art in photography and in, in tech we had a tech department at a very young age at an age when kids don't usually show that as much right. so I felt like I was with my own but the most important experience that I got out of that was the ability to commute to the city every single day and and have that culture very accessible. It was the city, I think, that, that really saved me. You right. Know? Yeah. And, you know, I kind of think of the fame school as, as... Dancing on cabs. Dancing on cabs, but also, like, you know, I grew up in a school, public school, where any artistic notion was bullied. And I, but I was curious if even going to that kind of school, if there were still... Um, Drawbacks. Or, or there was still that same insecurity, shame, dealing with that kind of stuff. Yeah, of you know course. I, mean? I think, yeah, the drawbacks for me was that I was the best trumpet player in my junior high school, but then okay. when you go to a school that takes all the best trumpet players from everywhere around the city, right. it's like, I'm not doing that. Like, no, you know, I'm not that good. So it killed my trumpet, my trumpet it dreams. Did. Yeah. And then so, like, when you went in there, obviously you're like, uh, nobody's better than me on trumpet, and then you find. I went out. in there like like hella cocky. I was like, dude, I can I will bugle blast right now. <laughs> I will give I'll give these nerds a bugle blasting, and then I and then I remember this one kid. He had never studied music ever. He didn't know how to read notes, and he played the piano, and it was like hearing like Mozart playing on the piano. It was like incredible, and I was like, never mind. You're like, <laughs> like oh, I'm I, at the fame school. You know what? Forget <laughs> it. Forget it. So yeah. So what was the, did you have a plan when you started like diving into GarageBand and making beats? Did you have a plan of, of what you wanted to do or was it just like, I am just being me and I'm killing time and... I don't think I ever expected it to go anywhere, you know? I, I think that um, it was something that I, I truly enjoyed and I still do. When I'm, when I'm on set, I just, you know, I just shot in China. I would rap maybe 2 a.m. and then I'd make music all night until 6 a.m. Really? Yeah, that's what I've been doing since I, since I was, you know, even in, in high school, my later years right. of high school. That's my outlet. And I have probably a bank of over 1,500 to 2,000 songs, little songs. It could be as short as 15 seconds to, to huge pieces that are, like, orchestral. And um, they all just live on hard drives. And, no and, kidding. Because I don't... That's the thing. Like, I don't. I don't want my music out there because you know, if people insulted coming up like Aquafina. They insulted my my production. That's when I would get. I don't care if they said I was a bad rapper, bad actress. If they insult my production, that's when I get really angry. I get really sensitive. You take that really personally. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about that that weird dichotomy of of the name and the persona of Aquafina yeah. a little bit in terms of the fact that. Like, tell me the story of how that name was born. Because what I'm interested in is how that sort of innocent, comedic little moment of, oh, I'll call myself Aquafina, mm -hmm. how that made sort of a dividing line between one part of your, pers of your personality or your identity and another. Yeah, I, mean, I think that, you know, that, that dichotomy really transformed over the years. Like, it didn't start out that this is Aquafina and this is what she does and this is Nora. It was literally like, I'm making songs and, and my song, if I, you know, my artist name right. under these songs is not Nora Lum, it's Aquafina. Right. So that was at 15, 16 when I started like producing and, and then, you know, later on rapping, singing, things like that. So um, at first it was just as simple as that. But now, you know, after, you know, many years, it's, it's become a lot bigger than that. So, and sure. I realize now, but you're right, maybe there was a psychological intention with originally... Well, I was reading that you were, you were saying that, um, you know, Nora Lum couldn't 
get up on stage and perform and be heckled. No way, yeah. But Aquafina could. Aquafina can take the heckles and she can fight the heckles. So how, tell me how that division takes place in your brain. Um, I think that I compare Aquafina uh, to, to someone who never grew up, to someone who has uh, aggressive confidence. And I think that every woman kind of has to reach into themselves. Maybe they have to be drunk, but they like reach into themselves <laughs> and they pull out this persona um, that's invincible or just thinks that she is. But As I, a way to get through certain trials. Sure, yeah. Sure, job interviews, dates, things like that. Like right. there's always that someone that you have to dig out that may or may not be fake, but you know, very an intrinsic part of your own personality, but you have to dig her out. So I think that that's what it was. And then I think that also in, it's easy to walk on a stage with confidence and play it up and then establish that, and then you can get through a, a lot of it. And so, you know, Nora doesn't walk onto stages with confidence. Aquafina does, you know. And so, when when you see Aquafina take a stage, she 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 convinces people that she's very confident, and that controls the audience. Do you see her as a separate person? Sometimes, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Go back to the Margaret Cho quote a minute of when you said that you'd never see seen an Asian woman without shame. Yeah. What's behind that comment? I'm trying to understand that from my perspective of, was that one of those expected things that you never questioned until you saw her? Because I, I'm trying to relate how that works with becoming an artist and yeah. developing that confidence. Well, becoming, yeah. I mean, Margaret Cho is prerogative. She's controversial. Her set is, her set is very X-rated. And I, you know, no w woman, let alone Asian-American woman, had ever made my grandma say, like, she's disgusting. And even my grandma was shocked to see Margaret Cho, a presence like that. And for me, seeing someone on TV, an Asian-American woman, an adult, um, that had a perfect command of English as well. Right. That was also very, you know, it, it, it was a connection. You know, that lonely person that, like, didn't know how anything could connect, she was that connection. So it's like, well, she did it. And it wasn't like, well, she can do it, I can do it. It was like, well, well look at her. Like, she, she did it. Right. And so, and it's not, and I didn't think it was like, well, she's lucky, like, it's just amazing. She was amazing. And um, apart from being Asian-American, uh, that had nothing to do with why she was funny. She was just funny on her own. It could have been, she could have been wearing a mask and been funny. Right. So all of those things um, were so powerful. It was so powerful for me. Really, like, I, I, I don't say that quote, like, like, you know, that quote I say all the time because it's, it's the truest thing. It really is. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you think you may be depressed or if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, uh, you're probably not alone. I sure know that I've been in all those places throughout my career and even in the last eight or nine months, it's not an easy time to feel great about things. And BetterHelp Online Counseling Services offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and help with issues, including anxiety, depression, relationship conflicts, sleeping difficulty, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. And if you're like me, if you're an entrepreneur or an artist or somebody who has had to rely on themselves for most everything. In other words, if you've built your own life and you're going through this world trying to figure things out like I have been, there are times when you just need help. You need to sort things out. And I've been a big proponent since my 20s of therapy. When I first went to therapy, you know, it was like a needle in a haystack to try to find somebody that could help me. 
And if you can imagine me back then going through the phone book and searching for therapists and asking people for recommendations, it was a whole new world and it was a world that I didn't know anything about. And so, you know, it took me a while to find someone that I really felt good about. And and I feel great about this company, BetterHelp, because they've sort of managed to figure all of that out and make it much easier for you to find the right person that can give you the help you need. What they do is you simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. You can schedule secure phone or video sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited message, communicate with your therapist, and best of all, and of course, everything you share is confidential. If you're unhappy with your counselor, if you don't feel like it's a good match, you can just request a new one at any time for no additional charge. I think about if I had had this kind of access when I had started, it would have saved me a lot of time funny story, I used to ride my bike to therapy because I was trying to combine two of my self-care activities in one, therapy and physical exercise. And uh, I remember often being late and racing to therapy on my bike and coming in out of breath. And well, it's a lot different now and it's a lot easier. And BetterHelp has really figured out how to do this from the privacy of your own home. It's just a great system. So join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option and the listeners of Off Camera get 10% off their first month with the discount code CAMERA. Go to betterhelp.com, that's betterhelp.com slash camera. And you can talk to a therapist online and get the help you need. Now back to the show. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, however many thousands of years that we've been humans entertaining each other or taking up sports or taking up creative pursuits, there's 7 billion people on the planet. Yeah. It's pretty hard to be first at anything, but right. you may be the first female Asian American rapper slash actress of any consequence. Like to be the first at something it's is difficult. Is pretty amazing. And to even go down that path artistically with only one signpost, only Margaret Cho, right? <laughs> like, I- I'm curious about how you kept, like, putting yourself out there. I'm curious, like, when you've heard yourself first rapping, I'm sure, like anybody else, you had a self-critical voice in your head sure. of how good you were or whatever. Oh, yeah, I, everything's, everything sucks. When I first sat down to GarageBand, I kind of knew that everything that I made from right now till years later is going to suck. The Sonics are going to suck. It'll be mixed all weirdly. I couldn't even Google or or YouTube what a compressor was or what it did or what an EQ did. I had to just figure it out by just playing around, blowing things out. And But it was the first thing that I had actually developed and studied and learned. It, I had to struggle with it. No one becomes a doctor overnight. No one becomes a mathematician overnight. No one but they can go to school for those things. Totally. But yeah, you can't, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I didn't, didn't have anyone to just, you know, throw me up there. And, uh, but no, it, it, that's okay. Because I, uh, uh, like, being the first, it sucks. But it's also, it's cool. It's amazing. It's cool. But it sucks because if you can Google how to, how to quit your job, how to confront a passive-aggressive coworker, how to dress it for a job interview. I haven't, I haven't Googled any of those things. Yet, well, I have, so you know, <laughs> I definitely have. I, I've had enough jobs for, yeah, for sure. But uh, you can't Google, like, how to, how to act at a premiere or, like, right. you know what I mean? Like, you can't Google, like, how, you can't Google any of the stuff that I do. 
Um, and, and also, you can't look at an example of like someone else that went through it, and this was the mistake they made, and this is what happened to them, and this is, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's really no example out there, and that's what sucks about it. It's like you really are, you got to go through it all. You got to just do it. I want to go back a minute to, to this moment in your career where no one knew about you, and then obviously at a certain point in your life, you're working, you, you're pretty much making music on the side, mm-hmm. and you make this song, My Vag. Mm-hmm. Really, I just wanted to say My Vag on Yeah, television. well, go, go ahead. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So you make this song, My Vag, which is sort of a response song to a, a rapper who uh, is... It was based off of it, yeah. It was rapping about the superiority of his own genitalia. Right. Another thing I never thought I would say on this show. <laughs> but... So you're the first. Take, take me through the story of, because this to me is like, falls right in line with the conversation about Nora Lum versus Aquafina. Right, right. And not knowing whether you can be an artist and you, you have a straight job, right? You're working mm-hmm. in New York and you're making music all night in your mm-hmm. house. Tell me, tell me that story about how that whole thing happened. Well, I think that, um, you know, because I, I'd always ingrained in my head that, that these things were not possible. Um, I was really horrible at everything else. So, you know, I didn't do well that well in school. Was never an overachieving student by any means. Um, so, like, I... You're just breaking stereotypes everywhere. No, I really, really, yeah, <laughs> seriously. Really, and, you know, passed the driver's, driver's test on my first try. And <laughs> flying colors, actually. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I uh, you know, made these songs, I, 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 it was very pounded into me that, that it would never go anywhere. And not even a dare to dream. Because it's like, don't even think, don't even dream that this will, just don't let your mind go there because it won't, and, and it's okay right now where it is. And so... And because there had never been anyone like you. No. And so, like, how is it possible? And, right. and YouTube at the time, it was, it was there, but, like, I wasn't really connected with that culture, and I didn't really know how it worked and things like that. So it really was just for me. And so my badge, I, I made that in... Uh, I think I was in college at the time. I was 19. And I, like I said, I worked at a video store, so there was, like, this music video director that came in all the time, and we became friends. And... Um, was that Court? Court Dunn. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we were just friends, and, and all of a sudden he just, like, I maybe sent it to maybe one or two people. And um, one of them had forwarded it to him and was like, this song is so funny. And he was like, we have to make this a video. We have to. And this was five, or, five years later after I had made oh, the so song. Oh, so it had sat? It sat there, like all my songs do. I have, I have tons of songs that just sit, you know? So it just sat there, and, and he was like, this is so funny, let's make a video. And at the time, I was working at what I believed to be the best job that I would ever have, ever. And it was a publicity assistant yeah. at a book publishing company. And I was... And so you're in Manhattan every day. You, yeah, you, I mean, you got but, a good but, job. I mean, you know, I, it wasn't, like, the most soul-fulfilling, but, I, but I, I still didn't... If you'd asked me what publicity was, I probably, even then, would not have been able to tell you exactly what it was. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it was that. I just really didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, and then I, and I was really scared. I think when you go into a culture like that, you know, in any job, you're scared of like, it just seems like, you know, if you break this then you're, that you're, who are you, you know? So it, it brings you into an office culture that you, that's your peers right there. So it's like, if you right. go against them or you do anything weird. There's a little bit of herd mentality of this exactly. is how you behave. So I was like, hell no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting a video like that on YouTube. Because at that time, it was like, I'll never be able to walk into a job interview ever again. So he was like, well, just wear glasses, and no one will p- tell you apart. So at Salvation Army in Clinton Hill, I found these 
these chemistry goggles, and and um, he was just like, just wear wear those, and and no one will be able to tell you. He was the guy that watched Superman. Was like, nobody knows. Yeah, Clark was it? Or, or, or was he just, he just bad ideas? You know, I think it was just because I was fired very shortly after that. I so think, tell me how that works. So you put it up. So I, I filmed it, I believe, on my birthday. Okay. And then I went to work, and you know how, like, in, office, in an office setting, they have, like, a really, like, a shitty, obligatory little birthday party for you? <laughs> right. Where they'll go to Magnolia. We have those here. Yeah, they'll go to, like, Melissa's <laughs> and get you, like, just the tiniest. Yeah. And it's like, do you can give me a fucking full-size muffin <laughs> for my birthday? You got some carrot, like a carrot muffin. Right. Or just a carrot, you know? <laughs> they just give you a carrot and then just say, like, fuck you, give me a drug. So, they, we had a, you know, a little obligatory birthday party, and uh, my boss... Um, was like, what'd you do for your birthday? And I was like, oh, well, funny story, I shot a music video. And um, she told me, well, what was it called? Because at that point, like, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have plans for it, whatever. And I was like, well, it was called My Badge. So very shortly after, and you know, my boss was like, just be careful, be careful, because everything that you do lives on the, comp- lives on the internet. Right. And right now, like, you know, you, you work for a company and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to do anything that could embarrass you or anyone else. So I was like, all right, well, you know, all that I do is come to work and go home and produce music. And if I, I felt like that it was an infringement on my creative outlet and one that I needed so badly to wake up in the morning and go to work and bring myself into a job that had no satisfaction or no fulfillment, that I didn't think I was good at, if you would take away, like, my entire other life, then I would have nothing. I'd be left with nothing. So really, it was just, it was really annoying for me to hear that. Yeah. And I think one night I, I forgot to send out the New York Times bestseller list, which is like an, a real thing that you have to do. My Part only, of your job. My only job requirement. <laughs> like really my own, like at, the, at that point, the only job that they trusted me with. Just <laughs> to send out a mailer once a week. And I didn't, I, I went home and I didn't do it. And I think that was like the last straw and I was, I was fired. Really? But I think it was it was a lot. It was a culmination. It was the video. It was me being shitty and me, me not selling out the best New York Times bestseller list. It all culminated. But I think your story is that much more complicated because you didn't have any belief that it would ever go it anywhere. It could go anywhere. It's, it's just, you being a pure it's just what for I yourself. Did. Yes, and I felt like if I didn't have that, I have no identity because I saw my my millennial friends graduate from you know University of Wisconsin, graduate from Yale, graduate from from uh, Barnard, Bard, all. All these places and, and they got jobs that they loved and that was their life you know I one of my best friends was all at the same job as I did but she would go home with actual priorities like she'd look at her phone and be like oh I gotta do this and I went home and I was like well I have nothing I have nothing to do because I had to separate myself and I had no responsibilities and because they didn't trust me with anything and I was so bad at it so I was I remember being so jealous of my friends who found jobs that gave them purpose because my purpose was not that. It just, it would never have been. And, um, and you know, it, it echoes to that, that thought as a kid where I could not find the connection to adulthood, where I would ever be doing something that made me happy because what would that be? So it, it played into that a lot. And um, there was always something in the back of my head that I was like, maybe this would work. Like maybe, like just watch. Because that would be so funny that all the serious, like electro indie, like all the stuff that I that is so corny and no one wants to listen to, like that'll never work. But this stupid song that like I don't even care about doing that. I wrote right. 15 minutes. Like watch this song do it. And that's what happened. And that's exactly what happened, yeah. So what did, what did it feel like to 
have it start to just rack up the views? I, I kind of, you know, p pressing that publish button on YouTube is the hardest decision that anyone will make when they come into this world, whether they fail at it or they're successful or whatever. It's that publish button. So once once you get right, to that... Right, because at that point, people have an, uh, they have an opinion about you. When it's out there, you, it's out there. And, and you can't take it back. Exactly. And that becomes part of your brand or your story or your... Or exactly, and how embarrassing it is to, to have this secret music life and then announce to all your Facebook friends that like, oh, well, this is a rap... Like, you, I don't know that you didn't know that I did this, but... And it, I just seen other people do it. I was like, ooh, that's embarrassing. Like, that's gross, you know? So I really thought that it would remain anonymous to some extent. But it, wasn't, it really wasn't until I had absolutely nothing to lose that I could have done such a thing. And you pushed the button. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did it slowly shift your, your belief or life philosophy that, that you can operate in this world and that could be your main thing? It terrified me to death. So somehow having that, having that little secret world in your room go out public, just the ramifications scared you. The ramifications horrified me. Like I really- What were you most scared of? Never ever being able to get a normal job ever again because people would look at my history and, I, and it would be completely tainted. But isn't that exactly like the most awesome thing in the world that you could probably never get a normal job again and you have the coolest job in yeah, the world? Yeah, but what if that didn't pay either? <laughs> so what if both worlds rejected me? Um, so yeah, it was it was a constant fear, always, you know, that it was the wrong thing to do, that it was too much. What did your dad think of it? I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, dad. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, thinking about that now must have been awkward. My dad um, really thought I was going crazy. He yeah. did. And that's when he signed me up for the government job listings that I still get to this day. Oh, he did. He wanted me to become an air traffic controller because they make the most money upon their first year. Um, he wanted me to become a meat inspector because there was a, a meat inspector, a particular drought of those those that year. Don't you wish you could have just for a little bit of parallel live and see what see what being a meat inspector was like for a for a I week? I considered it. You I did. really did. Yeah, I really did consider it. Um, it was it was uh, it was rough. He never he was always like kind of he was always like you know, and I was always mad that my dad never wanted me to become like. A pediatrician, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why didn't you put? Why? Why now? When I'm in my 20s and I've lost my job, are you now all of a sudden being that supportive, pushy Asian dad that wants to push me into like these roots? Like, why didn't you push me through medical school or law school back then? I even said like, maybe I'll take the LSAT, and he's like, you know what? Don't do that. <laughs> so like, my dad, you meat know, inspector, meat inspector, air traffic controller, sonogram. Let's not aim too high. It was a, it was mediocre hanging fruits. Yes, <laughs> medium hanging fruits of the tree. Well, here's what I find really interesting is that you watch that video and there is a confidence or, or that's how I perceive it, watching it, that comes from you don't care, mm -hmm. you don't think anyone's going to see it, yeah. you're just having fun yeah. and that's why it's so appealing and, and so original. and. I think there's very few artists that get to come out of the gate and establish themselves so originally when mm. there's no stakes. Yeah. You weren't doing that because you wanted to get a record deal. You weren't doing it because exactly. you wanted to get followers. Exactly. I just wanted to see if, because at that point when you have nothing to lose and you really do believe that, oh, well, it's not going to do anything anyway. It's just going to live there and get 50 views from my family. Yeah, it's either going to be this or some stupid, like, carrot cake for my birthday. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah, um, so, but, but when you do that and people respond, I mean, did you, did you sort of that realize... That was the initial shock. Remember when we were talking about the initial shock? Yeah. That was the initial shock. That people and responded. After that was me stepping into that world 
And everything that happened after that, it wasn't that crazy, you know? Right. Yeah. In some way, you kind of snuck through the back door in terms of... I think about that sometimes for sure. But just the way that, that things have come and then hearing other people's... But it's weird. It's a weird thing, you know? I'm in many ways anti-Hollywood, like everything that I'm, everything that I, my physicality, I am not, I play against every single stereotype that you would think of as a, as a normal actress, you know what I mean? So, you know, I'm not, I didn't make a career off of anything physical, right? right. Like I am, like, you know, and that's, people always used to say when I first came up in, in, the, in the music game, they were like, well, it's easier for Asian women than it is for Asian men because of, look at porn. You have a lot of Asian women, you know, have practically any Asian men. It's like even in music, like I'm not a pop star. Right. I don't look like what, I don't pay attention to my looks, I barely wear makeup, I, I don't think about any of that stuff. And many people think I'm very homely looking. Like, I don't think that, I'm not, I'm not going to stand here and be like, well, um, you know, whatever. But I don't think that I really stood into a lot of those stereotypes of the musician. And then same with, with an actress. So everything that I do, it's, it's very like of, of, of a certain era right now. Like every, everything that I, you know, what, who I am. Right. And, I, and I, you're right, I don't think people hire me to, you know, play, like, really dramatic, like, character roles. I think they, play, they hire me because they, they only see me as myself, you know? Well, I think that's the most amazing thing, is when you get hired because people want you to bring your original voice to it, rather than, you know, so many actors get stuck in that idea of, but they don't know who I really am and what I can really do. How do you keep that confidence or have that same spirit when there are giant stakes and when all of a sudden you get this opportunity and you realize, oh yeah, I I want to do this. You know, how do you... It's horrifying. Yeah, how do do you find that same person that made that video when she didn't care? You know, it's the not caring... Has, is a feeling that has left me, especially in, in more recent, r- very recently. I have waking nightmares that I say something wrong by accident or someone finds something or someone makes up something and then everything goes away, really? right? When I used to never really think that it was possible, I think that when I, when I first came out, it was shocking people to get, to get things, right? And even after my vag, that went away because it turned into, like, how do you follow up? A, how do you make a viral video? You can't. Right. That's what I'm going to ask you is after you made that, was there some unnatural bar that was set yeah. too high that where you were like... But I think like- it ruined it. It ruined it, you know? And, and I always knew that, like, I wasn't good for music. Music is my thing. It's something I learn and something that I'm constantly learning that I love. But what I was good for was what I, when I was young what I would do around adults, oh, how right. I make people laugh. That's all I'm good for. So, and I, and I know that's true, and I don't know a lot of things about myself. I'm very insecure, but I know that. So when I go on to sets, when I go on to, to do things like this, or, or I'm, I'm made to be funny, I know that I can do that. And maybe, it's, it's, maybe I can't do it. Maybe it's that delusional confidence that says that I can, and maybe that's why I can do it. But... Um, that's what held me through Ocean's 8. Like, people always say, like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do that? And there was never feelings of, of inadequacy when it came to that. It was always like, well, I'm with icons right now, and, and who am I? You know, but it was never like that I couldn't do my job. You know what I mean? I wonder if there's some sort of survival aspect to it. Just like when you were there a is. kid yeah. and you had to make the adults laugh to feel safe. That's very interesting, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if on set, if... if you're like, if I don't pull this off now, I won't get to do this anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's really when all that I need to go on set is just a sobered, well-rested personality. That's all. If I can't go to, go to set when, I'm, you know, when I have no personality, if my personality is gone, I can't work. Makes and, me think almost the fight or flight 
thing yeah. where where some people in that situation would would just crumble under the pressure. Yes, yes. And you maybe fight for it and stay right there. Oh yeah, there. I always always have though. Always have, yeah. You know, when you skip over steps, I think that that can throw pe- some people well, off. It gives you imposter syndrome and exactly. it makes you question, did I earn being here? Did I did I pay my dues? You know? How does that imposter syndrome manifest? Like among other cast members when you walk into set. What's interesting is that I've had conversations with with very famous actors and actresses that they know what imposter syndrome is because they go through it too. Whether or not they were just starting or they were already established, everyone goes through imposter syndrome. And I was taught it, taught what that was because I didn't know what that was. So I was, I remember describing it to someone and I was like, I don't know, I just feel like I shouldn't be here or like I didn't earn it and I just feel like they don't know, you know, and like, you're describing imposter syndrome. And then I looked it up. I think it was um, Annie Letterman, this, this other comedian that I did Girl Code with. She was the one that told me what imposter syndrome was. And I Googled it, and I was like, this is, this is what I have right now. This is how I'm dealing with the pressure. It's horrifying. This is, this is what it is. So I think, uh, especially in this industry, when, when you see so many people just gunning for the same thing, um, waiting for their break despite how talented they are, um, it really makes you think, like, why, why me? Why not this other person when she could have done better or, you know, and, and, I, and it was funny because I was just listening you know, to Henry Golding, the star of Crazy Rich Asians, yeah. who was talking about this. When he was first approached by it, he was like, well, that's not, not me. Why me? You know, why couldn't there someone else out there that was meant to do this? He, he said that last night. So I just, I really connected with that. Yeah. How do you sort of deflate it in the room for yourself? It, it, it went away when, I, when the camera starts rolling. And people start laughing. I can see the crew laughing. That's when it goes away. That's you need a little bit of feedback. I need validation. Right. I need it. <laughs> if I don't have it, like I've delivered interviews to camera people who just don't laugh, and it kills it. It's it's not there anymore. Right. Do you feel a bit like a hustler? Yes. You do. Oh, oh, of course, dude. I mean, that's all. That's how I came through life. You know, that's why I was working at vegan bodegas to you know, waitressing and Japanese bodegas and shady real. Like that's why I had to. It's survival. It's hustling, and it's the same reason why I cannot stop to enjoy. You know, right now I'm on this crazy press tour. It's been right. it's been nonstop. I came off two different movie sets in two different countries, filmed my pilot, all in the span of like three months. So like it's it's been crazy. But then I know that come September there's going to be a lull where I won't have work, and I'm just going to be sitting there. And every single day I'm going to hate myself. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to hate myself for not coming out of my bed and for waking up at noon and for not going out there because there's an instinct in me that says that if you're not out there constantly pulling for something, it's what are you doing? You know, it's a horrifying feeling. That feeling of not trusting that unless you go out there and do something, and I don't even know like what that. And then I answer myself like, what? Go out and do what? Like go to Jamba Juice? Like what? What am I doing? Going working out, doing kickboxing? Like what am I doing? It, there's always that sensibility. I can't rest. I can't rest. So I've never been the type to not have a job. Never been the type to not be doing something. So I know that there's a lull coming up, and and it's coming off of huge, the maybe the biggest year of my life. Yeah. Um, up until now. So I always think about how I'll deal with that, that lull. Well, you have your 1,500 songs. You could release right. a few of those. No, I don't think I will. Because I'm like, these suck, dude. 
These are weird. I wonder if that idea of these suck is actually the driver that keeps you going. Oh yeah, I never am satisfied. But I was watching that like Beyonce documentary on HBO, and at some part she she does she says something to the effect of like, I am never satisfied with any level of success that I'm at, um, and I totally get that. And that's Beyonce. You know what I mean? Right. That's Beyonce, dude. She's the gold standard of you've made everything. It. Yeah. Of everything. You know, from everything. But she, if if you say that you're satisfied, then that means that you can can stop for a second and that you don't need to do anymore. And I and I think maybe that's what it means for me. I don't think I've ever been satisfied with any level of work. When people say this is the best year of my life. Like, it kind of angers me or it gives me anxiety or some, something like that. Like, it's all downhill from here. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, what about next year? Will that be a good year? You know, like, so it, it's, it's a constant, you know, I don't want to think that. And I'm, and, and it, it maybe some, for some people, maybe it reads as ungrateful. It's not because this year has been ridiculous. I've been a part of sets that I never, ever thought that I would ever get on. Yeah. And so it's not ungratefulness. It's just that, like, well, I hope that it continues and I hope that I get better. You know, it's just, it's that. I wonder if people are watching that aren't artists and they're going, that poor woman, like, like, how come she can't enjoy this? You know what I mean? But I, th- I think that that is sort of, it's common among artists. It's so common. What I think now is that, you know, like that thing when my friend, my other publicist friend came and she would look at her phone and be like, well, I have all these things to do. And she felt soul satisfied. That's what I found. And so I don't care about... You know, like even when my life, my career wasn't that lit and I was just doing small things, even then every year felt like my best year. Like every year I never felt like, oh, what could have went better this year as Aquafina? I never felt like, oh, well, I could have done this better. I could have done that. And I could have. Every year was a blessing. Every yeah. single year. So, you know, I found what I love. I found what I always dreamt of as a kid that would connect with adulthood. This is what I'm doing now. So it, it, that's how powerful it is for me, you know? Like, yeah. I, feel, I feel like I can walk and I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I know why I'm there, you know? That's the best feeling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's something I discovered a little late, but I'm here now and it's, it's amazing. It's, it's what, I, what, I was, what I was always trying to do, I think, yeah. One thing you said was you said that Aquafina is the expression of of everything I had repressed. Yes, in adulthood. What did you mean by that? Um, I think when you're in high school, you don't care, and or even younger, when you're at sleepover with your friends and you're jumping out the window, those are the times where you make the best jokes. Those were some of the funniest moments, the hardest I've ever laughed, and the funniest times I've ever been funny, you know? And so you go to college, and college for me was kind of like prison. Uh, I silenced a lot of things. I, I, ha- I had to learn how to carry myself in social settings that wasn't dunking an ice cream into my eye. Like right now, the way I'm carrying myself, this wasn't me in high school, you know? I had to learn this. I had to learn how to have conversations and stuff like this, like serious conversations. You were a total, like, uh, eccentric I was, I was eccentric. I was, I was still smart. Like, I could still talk about film and things like that. But, like, I, wasn't, I couldn't, like, really sit here and be patient and just kind of sit here. Um, and then getting a job and being in an office environment, learning, like, what that does to you, how self-conscious it makes you, how, how you have to learn how to, how to be like everyone else and, and to kind of just, you know. And so that's what Nora is. Right, and that's how Nora grew up, right? And Aquafina, she it's you know that movie Drop Dead Fred? Oh yeah. It was one of Phoebe Kate's first movies. And uh, she has like this imaginary friend that she, when she was little, was like her best friend. And then on the eve of her wedding day or something, he like comes back. 
he just gets summoned again. So that's what I think Aquafina is. So she's around to remind you of who you really are inside. Yeah, because I don't think Aquafina is someone I invented. She's definitely a part of, she's a part of me. You know, she is me. They're me. You know, I think people like to call it, uh, you know, such a staunch dichotomy. One is the other one. is Like, I refer to her sometimes as a different person. Right. But she's intrinsically a part of me. She came out of me. I think that's fascinating because I think all what you're talking about, you could put it in different settings and people would call it different things. Like, if you talked about what you're talking about in a psychological setting, people would say Aquafina is your inner child. Yes. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. There's not much different from a child and an artist in terms of the part of us we have to access to be able to make something that connects with other people. Yes, it's raw. It just, it's raw. It just is, that's what they were born with. It's not anything that they learned, you know? It's just what they had. With. I think everybody needs a persona. I need a... And I think everyone does, I think everyone does have... You, why is your show like therapy? This, I feel like this is a transformative experience for me. Like oh, you, good. you've said some things to me that like put so many, like not, not just like little things, but like huge life questions that like things that I've carried with me and you just put them into, do you get this a lot? That is so flattering. I really appreciate is you it saying fun? that. Do you do this on purpose? Is no, I, I <laughs> You're think so this good is, at this. I think this is exactly what I am fascinated in. I am fascinated in all the barriers that stand in the way of anyone becoming themselves and becoming an original. And I get to talk to people who, who got around all those and became the most original voices. And so I'm, I'm fascinated with how it happens and why it happens for some people and others fail miserably. I feel like I just did one of those ecstasy sessions where they give married couples ecstasy and well, they that's just sit in a room for 15 <laughs> We put ecstasy in our And they just like tea. give their whole testimonial and they come out like a different, like the sun is shining, the morning sun is out, and they're like, oh, you yeah. know. I think we should advertise that that's what happens to you when you come on the show. This is, that's exactly what happened to me. That's, Good. Yeah, it's a great Good. thing. Um, I, I, that's probably a perfect ending, but I did want to ask you one more thing. Um, have you ever really had a plan? No, never. I still don't. I don't have a plan at all. That's where the fear comes from. Yeah, but, but I feel like if you <laughs> the had the plan... The lull is coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, I, I'm just waiting for that lull, dude. <laughs> you know, sign me up for... I don't know what people do nowadays. Spin? I don't yeah, I don't know. You could, I don't see you spinning. I can't spin. Yeah, yeah. it's boring. It is boring, and it's like, where is my mind going there? Right, it's spinning. It's spinning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank cool. you for letting me into your story. No, a thank bit. you for letting me talk about oh, it. Yeah, I think that my my soul left me at some point, and I was just it was just id. It was just id coming out. So you're good. you're you're an id raveler. I'm the, I'm the id fisherman. You're an id fisherman. <laughs> I don't even know name. what that means. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Hey, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks for going on that journey with me. I love talking to Aquafina. And I love diving into her career and discovering so much of her work that I haven't seen or heard before. Of course, if you haven't yet, you should check out Crazy Rich Asians, Ocean's 8, and Neighbors 2, in which you'll find Aquafina stealing scenes on a regular basis. But also, go to YouTube, watch her videos, subscribe to her channel, and just give in to the world of Aquafina. It's a pretty cool world to be in, and I really enjoyed meeting her. And if you want to dive deeper into the world of off-camera, there's no better way to do it than by going to offcamera.com. 
For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to our entire archive, and it's a great way to take a deep dive into the off-camera experience. We love having you on board as a listener, and we would also love to have you on board as a watcher. So check that out, subscribe, and dive in. It not only is a great way to experience all of these creative conversations, but it really supports the show. So if you like what we're doing here, check that out, and please talk about us on social media, tell your friends, share the story of Off Camera. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. So give us a follow and go on iTunes, give us a rating, give us a like. All those things help us spread the word about the show. So if you like what we're doing, don't keep it a secret. I want to thank everybody that works hard to make this show a reality. Our producer, Crawford Shippey. Our visual artist, Michaela Galvin. Our esteemed editor, Nathan Shields. Our studio manager, Sasha Snow. Our transcriptionist, Kara Johnson. And our official food taster, Matt Davidson. We couldn't do a show without these fine people. And I am in their debt every week for all the hard work they do on this show. And mostly thank you for listening and for tuning in. We want to keep doing this show for a long time. And we really appreciate your support. See you next time off camera.